This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today is Thursday, September 21st, 22023, here with Rebecca Shinsky. It's fall today, Rebecca. It's, it was 48 it degrees really and sunny at 6 a.m. when I went for my oh, run this morning. It felt, I had to wear lovely. long sleeves, a little chill in the air. Uh, there, there was a, a local garden, one, one of the houses has a garden in front, and they have a pumpkin that's orange. It's here. <laughs> Perfect. It's here. It is here. This is like a magical window in the year where it's dark when I get up or like dark enough and I sit down, like first thing I do is sit down to meditate and when I open my eyes like 10 to 20 minutes later, oh, day has arrived and it feels like magic. Mm. It's just you're, the best. sun summoning. I love this time of year. It's mm-hmm. good. And the rain cometh that looks like this weekend. Um, so I was hoping for a little bit more. Maybe we'll get another reprieve, but it, it's certainly fall. It's fall in the books. It's fall in the world. Uh, a lot going on here. Let's see. I guess some programming reminders. If you've been following the Patreon, great. And if you haven't, you might be interested in a couple of things. We recorded and published already. It's up on the site now. Patreon.com slash podcast. We'll link a link in the show notes. Uh, and ask us anything where we got, you know, a couple dozen questions from Patreons. And we answered them. Had a good time. Very good time doing that. Still yeah, still early enough in the fall where you can be on the front of the fall book season, the winter, excuse me, the fall preview draft. We did that up and available there. After uh, sort of next week, we're going to record this later today for the Patreon. We are going to be talking about The Fraud by one Zadie Smith um, for, I don't know, we'll get a good half hour out of that, I would say. I think so. At least, And then yeah. a little later on, we're going to do some other stuff, but we're going to do a triple play of Let Us Descend the Vaster Wilds and Going Infinite and some other stuff coming up. There, you can check out first edition. September It Books is up. Uh, coming up, I think, early next week, maybe Friday, depends on how much energy I have today. Um, I talked to a couple of women at, at Red Tower Books, which is mm. the imprint that published Fourth Wing, which is the. Oh, yeah, you previewed this, this for yeah, me. Which is the book selling sensation of the year i would say or the, the breakout book of the year even if it has it broken out into the the mainstream maybe not yet could it i don't know but it's a phenomenon of its own kind it's i think it was the best selling book of the week the week before last week it was stephen king's um first week of holly so it took the the top spot with 108,000 in sales but i talked to him about that book how they made it the the spreads which they don't you like to use that term they use sprayed edges they were very careful when I asked about sp- spreads they have some they didn't dignity. even acknowledge it they just went they moved right to sprayed edges <laughs> but how that book was made what their business model is how they positioned it how they marketed it what it was like to not have any books on hand uh, when it sold out and you know how they decided to to release the second book uh, Iron Flame comes out in November. All the things that go into it. So even if you're not interested in, in Fourth Wing or Romanticy writ la- by itself, I think it's a really interesting story and the kind of thing I want to do. I like to do on First Edition. Check that out there as well. Um, pretty soon, I'm not sure when, probably the first week of October, you and Vanessa and I did a 25-year look back at You've Got Mail. We recorded that last week. <laughs> it was week, fun. And that was a lot of fun too. So stay tuned to all those things. So if you want to read and watch and get ahead on everything, that's everything that's going on there. Let's take a sponsor break and get into the week the news of the week today's episode is brought to you by underlined 
haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet, we dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 and she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I guess speak. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. You do it. I was going to do it. I would say before we start, I'm just dying to know. Did you read 16 books this week again? The wheels fell off a little bit, I have to say. Um, (laughs) You talked about it and there it went. Our friend and coworker, Clint, was like, it it sounds like you're you're Liberty now. It's like, oh, wow. I'd never. I mean, that's Liberty's pace. I don't know that 16 in a week. I think she does something like four to 500 a year at this point. So she's really cooking. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it went back. It didn't fall all the way off, but it went back to, I think, a three, four book week, which is still pretty good for me. But the pace couldn't. It just couldn't continue. There, There was a. Um, a reverse Bermuda Triangle of things that put me in position to get through. Not, not the least of which, The Fraud was the first book I read on the, the new Kindle, mm-hmm. and I really got into that. Picked up a couple of other things there, too. I'm also savoring the new Ross Gay on audio. I'm not racing me through it. Too. so That's slowing me down in a good way. In The Vaster Wilds, I'm not sitting there and reading it for two hours in a row. I'm really into that. Um, and then I read a couple of business books, which aren't as page-turnery. So it's just sort of a... I don't know. Back to back to normal. Still, Just still back to still normal. Well, but back to normal. So, all right. Okay. Maintaining. Yeah, maintaining there. Um, I was referencing bestseller lists a little while ago, but I wanted to shout out a piece that Danica Ellis wrote for us. That's part of the Book Riot deep dive. This is a free send, so available to anyone. Um, Bookriot.substack.com or link in the show notes where she breaks down the weekend bestselling books for us every week on the site. So she knows as well as anybody. Um, you know, kind of what's going on the best. And she talks about why we don't really have a good bestseller list and why she has to do, well, it doesn't have to, why it's useful to look at them in concert with each other because of all the rules and different regulations and different sources all these booksellers lists come from. Also as a bonus, um, as one of the images in the middle of this end is Daunt Books that I went to. It's, you know, the Unsplash, the creative, the, the, the image licensing service we use. Um, the one she pulled is actually Daunt Books. So you can see what it looks like there. That's kind of funny to see. But mm-hmm. go check that out. Um, I guess while we're still promoting things, you and I continue to write today in books. 
every day, uh, alternating on. I did one, a paid for subscribers, a little quiz. Did you see that today? It went out today. Did you see what it... I yeah. did. That was fun. A 10-question, yeah. ten, ten multiple-choice quiz about how well do you, the opener of the newsletter, know the American book publish industry. Um, if you hadn't seen it already, I was going to make you answer it, but that's no fun because you have a sporting <laughs> chance, which is not what I like to do. I don't like Rebecca having a sporting chance. That's not what I'm here for. Yeah, I did yeah. all right. Well, you should. It was, it was fun. But honestly, I would have done badly. It's hard. The numbers are big and confusing and they aren't what you think mm-hmm. they are. Mm-hmm. So go check those things out there. I think you didn't have it on the agenda, which I didn't know if you didn't if you didn't do on purpose. I thought the big book news of the week was the National Book Awards. Was long list. Was I wrong about that? You don't care as much about this as oh. I Oh. It was, I mean, it happened last week and the we long didn't talk list, about it. It I don't care about as much talked. as the finalists. Yeah. yeah, it came out after we talked. I just kind of, it, I think I just blanked. Okay. Like I wrote the uh, Today in Books that gathered yeah. all of them up um, and it was just, it happens. This happens sometimes, like this is the Bermuda yes. Triangle of our podcast schedule is if something happens on Thursday evening or Friday morning. <laughs> It, like yes. unless it's huge, right. it does not make it onto the agenda for next Thursday. So I didn't leave it off intentionally. I'm happy to talk about them. Uh, I just am more interested in the winners and the finalists. And um, one of the upcoming Patreon episodes, we are going to power rank the fiction yes. winners of the last 10 years in anticipation of this year's. Prize. Well, I wanted to talk about this for a couple of reasons. One, I do think it's notable in itself. And we can talk about the short mm-hmm. list, too. But the long list gives us 10 books. But you know what, Rebecca? I read more front list than I ever have before. And <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I read the kinds of books that tend to appear on, you would think mm-hmm. that would tend to appear on the <laughs> National Book for Fiction I've, long list. I feel like we've had this conversation. Would you like to guess how many of these 10 titles <laughs> I have read already? I am going to guess it's zero, it's one, which is my one number. One, Chain okay. Gang Ulcers. I did read that okay. um, by... Um, this happened to us with the long list well, last year. What kind of odds could I have gotten on no ward, no Groff? And I'm not kidding. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm not either. It's astonishing. Like I'm, I'm very surprised. Very surprised. Now, I'm not surprised to see a couple of these on here. Paul Harding, who won a Pulitzer out of nowhere, is on this list. And this mm-hmm. other for Eden Tinkers. for Tinkers, yeah. which... Did we do blurb discourse? We did blurb discourse last week, right? All that stuff about blurb. You and Jen oh, did blurb Jen, discourse. Blurb, blurb discourse with Jen and I. I had forgotten that I picked up Tinkers before it won the Pulitzer because it has a it had a Marilyn Robinson blurb on the top of it that I checked oh, out. Oh, well, that'll do and it. I, it got me into it. But Paul Harding, no one hit wonder with this other Eden's got wonderful reviews. Um, and I'd be, mm-hmm. But okay, so it's Temple Folk by Aliyah Bilal. It's Changing All-Stars by um, Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya, I believe. I, don't, I couldn't find a, a pronunciation mm-hmm. guide for um, that author, but I'm doing my best I can. Pony Boy by Elliot Duncan, haven't heard of it. Paul Harding, this other Eden. Tanya James Lute, which I had on my radar. And I'm not even sure that's out yet. Mm-hmm. Is that out? Do you know? Oh, I think... It I might just be it out. Is. I had it. I had it on one of my long yeah. lists for a draft this right. year, but I don't think it quite made the cut. I did really like her debut. I did novel. too. Uh, Jane Ann Phillips is Night Watch. Um, Mona Susan Powers, A Council of Dolls, which I don't know anything about. Hannah Pilvanians, The End of Drum Time. Justin Torres' Blackouts, which I will read, but mm-hmm. I don't think that's out yeah. either. And then Latoya Watkins' Holler Child, which you read and said was. You got to watch out. I mean, you know what you're getting into, right? Didn't oh, you read this one? I read her oh, uh, novel, her last, novel year. last year. Okay. I haven't read these okay, short stories. Short story yeah. But this is on my this is on my radar. I really was like her her novel knocked me out, but was really difficult. Mm. And so I'm feeling the tension of I am sure that these stories in Holler Child are great, but also I know what I'm getting into emotionally yeah. with Latoya Watkins now, yeah. and I'm just kind of I, I need some time to gird, but I'm I'm sure I'm going to get there. What if anything to say about this list? I think this list is reflective of an arc or a pattern Mm -hmm. that we are seeing with the National Book Awards, where I don't know if there is instruction coming from the National Book Foundation or if something is happening with the individual groups of judges each year. But I think we're seeing an agenda to platform, and not in a negative way, um, to platform books that aren't necessarily getting big platforms elsewhere. Um, And I think that's fine. It's just, 
different than maybe what the award has done mm-hmm. in the past. But it, it does seem like to not have Jasmine Ward or Lauren Groff um, on here. And that's not to say that these 10 books aren't also worthy and wonderful. But it does seem like it's a conscious choice not to take two of the biggest <sighs> literary events yeah. of the year. Um, into consideration Um, and that I think that's all right if that's the direction that they're going but it is it was was surprising this year I can't remember last year what we were super surprised to see not on the list but this is not the first time that we've had this kind of conversation about the NBA long list for fiction yeah we had a similar conversation last year and who knows the best books of the year have fun with that like it's not something where there's a right or wrong answer and it's kind of what kind of what do you want to use the prize for um, mm-hmm. Last year, it was The Rabbit Hutch, If I Survive You, The Bird Catcher, Maria Maria, Nobody Gets Out Alive, All This Could Be Different, When We Were Sisters. A very similar kind of list. It was a lot, I mean, as mid-list as you're ever going to get. It's as mid-listy, and mid-list. Like, um, upmarket, and very MFA. MFA. Yeah, and again, it's tough. I it, because I'm of two minds, and I think I said this, the same, a, a similar version of this last year, I'm of two minds, where I really want, I really appreciate a list like this, where it's does it seems blind to, if not actively avoiding, AAA titles. So this is a video game parlance of things that have a big budget, either in terms of branding mm-hmm. or marketing or publicity or author name recognition. On the other hand... If you would have just asked me what books were on the last year's National Book Foundation long list, I, it would have taken me a minute even to come up with a rabbit hutch, I think, oh. at that point. And the conversation yeah. goes I nowhere. Only... It, goes, it just dies on the yeah. vine in terms of name recognition and branding and awareness. Um, I would only have remembered the rabbit hutch, but that's because I read it after right. it won the National Book Award just to be like, okay, what's the deal yeah. with this book? Um, I do think it makes the the long-term reflection about the National Book very, Award. Very strange. Different yes. and very I don't know, challenging. It's very hard to imagine that 10 years from now, we will look back at this long list and really remember any of these titles. Um, and that's pretty true for most yeah, books most, most of, of the, the time. time. <laughs> so like it's it's not a knock, but there are, if you, if you were trying to use award winners as a way to like have a snapshot of what was happening in literature in a given year like these are not the stories of the year maybe this is a move on the judge's part to try to lift some of these books into being one of the stories of the year the rabbit hutch did become a literary story of 2022 so so well that they changed the cover for the paperback which is always a terrible sign (laughs) right no one is talking about it anymore it didn't have staying power that's also a sample size of one um but this this does feel like a real thing that we're seeing here with the National Book Award. Um, I'm really interested in where it goes next mm-hmm. year. Like it it didn't I don't it doesn't feel like we had like a slowly creeping change. It was just kind of all of a sudden we went to being like, wait, we read lots of books, we pay attention to books for a living, and we're low on the list. Which m- means my assumption is that the average reader has read zero of these and it's probably looked, not it looks to them like a maybe, chat gpt artificial of list of names it could have been right. it could have been functionally <laughs> right. like made up and i don't know like mm-hmm. because this feels to me like an independent spirits awards to use the movie world kind of a list that's a great analogy. which is great and yeah. i love those movies right. and i may like them pound, pound for pound better than the 10 movies that get nominated for best picture but they do different things and i don't know I kind of wish I had a little of both. I think that's what I said last year. I kind of wish I had a little of both. I'm looking at the 2020 yeah. list right now. I'm just, I'm like, let me go back three years. So that's mm-hmm. Leave the World Behinds on that list. That book sold. That was a bit okay. of a thing. Yeah. The Vanishing yeah. Half yeah. sold. Julia Roberts is starring in the movie. Then it's The Vanishing on. Half yeah. sold, right? That was a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. Turtles used into, like, so there was two at least. There's not two like this on this list um, yeah. from this year. Now, again, Disha Filia's The Secret Lives of Church Ladies from West Virginia University Press. What a look for them that was, and then they then Disha wow. Filia gets a seven figure. We didn't talk that was on the agenda for last seven year. Seven figure talk deal, yeah. Um, Good so for her. you know that clearly was something, and that book sold very well for West Virginia University Press title. Things are going great at West Virginia University. That's what I hear online these days. <laughs> Things seem fine. So I feel like something like this does a little bit yeah, more, but I don't know how as a judge. And again, these these judging panels do their own thing. I don't know how you have it both ways unless you explicitly make it both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 
I really like your Independent Spirit Awards analogy because we've traditionally talked about the National Book Awards and the Pulitzers as like the Oscars. Like what you expect to see some combination of critical acclaim and popular. Mm -hmm. And, you know, usually if there's a book that threads the needle and manages to be both, like if you get a Fates and Furies kind of moment or Colson Whitehead, um, that can happen. But it looks now like they're leaning very strongly onto the like critical darling side with almost total disregard for readers response or any sort of commercial success or popularity, um, or maybe even being popular works against you in this consideration. Um, And that's just a, I think I need to rewire how I think about what the national book awards are. If this continues. Yeah. I'm going to look around and maybe it's not even, it's not even an awards list, but like, what list does the thing I wanted to do of give me some indie darling, some under the radar, amazing stuff, but also mm-hmm. give me um, Killers of the Flower Moon. I mean, that's a score. That's, yeah. that's going to be nominated think, for Best Picture unless it's a dumpster fire. That doesn't mean it's one of the 10 the, Best Picture movies of the year. It does right, not mean right, that. Right. But it does something for the awards. It does something for the conversation to have some... To have some celebrity, to have some stars, right? You get stars mm-hmm. in your movie mm-hmm. so that people will buy tickets because they like stars. And I do think there's something to the star element here. And I know I know that sounds kind of crappy, but like it kind of matters too uh, at the same time if, if, if we want to, ha- and maybe we don't care. Maybe, maybe it's like, why are we saving something that doesn't exist, which is mm-hmm. someone that may be book, book curious about this kind of thing, having any name recognition when they see the list. Maybe we don't care. Maybe that, yeah. maybe that's so well, fleeting that I'm trying to save some, say, I'm trying to close the it, barn door where there's no horses <laughs> and no barn and frankly, no farm. So I guess to take the like nihilistic view on it, if, if we know that like when you win the Nobel Prize, you still only sell a couple thousand books that week, then we can maybe extend that to winning the National Book Award isn't going to move the needle on any yeah. particular title. If if this doesn't matter for anything other than critical acclaim, like if all you're getting from winning the National Book Award is extended critical acclaim because you haven't been a big seller like none of these titles have, and you're not going to become a big seller based on having won the National Book Award, then most people aren't paying attention to it anyway already because it's not moving the needle to win it. So if it doesn't matter, you might as well use it for whatever your artistic agenda. If it has no power, you might as well use it to do something else it can't do. (laughs) Right. Uh, I think the closest that I see every year to a list that captures uh, all the mm-hmm. vibes that I want a book list to capture is the way that the, the New York Times approaches their the notable thing. books. Yeah. The 10 biggies, and those will include some biggies and some mm-hmm. under-the-radar ones that they've deemed important in those top 10, and then you get the 100 that is a really good mix yeah. in all senses of the word of genre and topic and identity and mm-hmm. you know the voice of things and some are high art and some are very commercial and the New York Times has done a really nice job of I think casting a wide net or creating a big tent for readers um, the National Book Foundation does not seem interested in that approach this is not a big tent approach no, to what fiction no, is it's not it does feel I think the MFA insularity vibe mm-hmm. is a, is a good one. Did I have any of these on any of our it book lists? Changing All-Stars I think I maybe I did. Maybe. Hmm. Yeah, I don't recognize. Well, maybe Justin Torres, I think you mentioned Blackouts on something. Is that even um out? maybe it was on your long list for I one of the that drafts. Might be for April, which we haven't yet done. Mm. Um, and helpfully when you click on the title on the National Book Awards list it doesn't tell you anything. <laughs> Oh, it tells great. you the ISBN that's number, really... but not the release date. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Talk about insular. Ah, uh, yes, the ISBN. You know what, looking at this list, yeah. it makes me think about the Brandon Taylor novel, or The Late yes. Americans, earlier this year, and the world of MFA insularity that that book is about. And really what I want is like a 20-minute podcast episode with Brandon Taylor just uh, spilling tea about his take on <laughs> what this looks like. He has a great substack. Maybe yeah. he'll deconstruct it over Yeah, there. so I'm going to go into Powell's later and say, you know, I was reading the National Book Awards long list. Do you have, happen to have ISBN 9780374293574? They're like, yeah, right here. Yeah, we got you. Here's the thing. I'm halfway through Vaster Wilds. And again, I Me was too. 
anchored and ready for it to be good, and it's very, very good. If -hmm. these 10 books are all better than Vassar Wilde's, I'm going to grow wings and fly out my house. (laughs) I think you're going to stay grounded, my friend. It's very good. It's not going to happen. Maybe we can... Do a little graph in Frontless Foyer. The, the, I guess the, 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 if you were to argue against our Independent Spirit Awards, is this is Pantheon, Simon, Norton, Norton, Knopf, Knopf, Mariner, Holt, FSG, <laughs> and Tiny Reparations, well, which is a peerage thing. Yes, but all of those big imprints do some smaller titles that are underwritten yeah. by the success of things like Lauren Groff. Um, I think it's really... I mean, I'm I'm just really stuck on the independent spirit analogy because you can do that in movies because there are still so few movies every year yeah, relative to how many right. books there are that there will be like nine or ten best picture Oscar nominees. Most of them are going to be from big studios mm, and like a couple mm. are probably going to be from A24 this year, which is making its way into being a really big studio. And then you need the independent spirit awards for like another ten great movies. Yeah. Well, the other thing the Oscars do so is many you, can, you can have um, I don't know. Killers of the Flower Moon, a tentpole. John, it's Apple and Scorsese and DiCaprio based on a David Grand book. That's triple A, triple A, triple A all the way down. But because there's other categories, you can have, you know, smaller movies be nominated for a screenplay or best supporting actor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's just more seats at the table, so you don't feel like the scarce. I mean, there's still this, this. People still do get snubbed, but there are ten novels, just ten. Right. That's all genres. That's everything for yep. adults. Like there's young adult, like that's a different thing. But like there's just so many that it feels like these seats are very scarce. And the more scarce they like are, the maybe, more careful you need to be with what you're doing with them. And maybe, I don't I, know. It's just, I, there's no answer. And, and there's and no answer. Maybe, well, maybe the National Book Awards or some award could do something that creates additional categories to do some of that representation, to have the best book of the year, yeah. which would be the equivalent of the Oscar for best picture. And you would get Lauren Groff and Jesmyn Ward and maybe one or two of these smaller titles. Mm-hmm. But then you could also have like best debut yeah. or in best small short press. Story collection. And, you know, right. Short story collections. Mm-hmm. Cause like a short story collection is never going to be a bestseller. Um, but there's room for recognizing those and do some some in-between places for some recognition of books like that, but where they're not taking up space in best book of the year, where it's just really hard for me to justify an argument for them to yeah. be. Anyway, so I guess this is what it's telling me that my monthly list of the it books of the month is the right way to do it. That's what I heard you say right there. So that's what I'm taking away from our conversation. That's what I will taking, well, be taking away into yeah, the future. We've established on this podcast that you're always yeah, right. right. So well, and not for nothing, we'll just, just the idea for that format is in response to lists like this because it's like it doesn't, mm-hmm. yeah, it's trying to capture something else. Well, I think it's, that's a really interesting question is who are the National Book Awards serving like who is this list intended to serve because it's not a general reader it's not even a relatively nerdy reader like you or me lord i mean right this is like for a person who has an mfa in fiction and wants to almost exclusively read that kind of fiction or is reading books in lieu of getting their mfa and this does not serve a general reader so maybe the audience they're serving is artsy writers and they want to and like listen i like artsy writing so do you like no knocks on it but awards tend to be used as a way to like shine a light on something that the general public is going to be interested in that best picture list that comes out from the oscars every year there's a reason that a bunch of theaters bring back Mm -hmm. movies that showed earlier in the year so that people who want to go see all the best picture nominees can go do it at the theater and we we're not getting that like the general reading public is not being served by a list like this most readers are going to look at this list and read pick up zero yeah. of them. And so if it's not intended to help a general reader find something new to read, maybe you're serving writers or you're serving publishers, but then I'm much less interested as people who run a publication intended to serve readers in covering it. And you could tell me, and I don't know the answer to this, because we saw the the news about um, um, the Secret Lives of Church Ladies um, 
Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, she gets a big deal out of the success of that. How much of that was about being even long-listed there and it gets picked up? I, maybe there is some of this that we're not seeing behind the scenes. But for an industry that has a hard time being part of the mainstream cultural conversation, with, which is books, especially the art, arty, more kind of arty mm-hmm. writing, which mm-hmm. is what I am interested in mostly, and with some other, with some, you know, with some exceptions, the Oscars, the Tonys, the Grammys, the Emmys, they are in, those are industry organs to shine a light on the industry as well. They're, they're organs of right. promoting the industry, promoting the work writ large. And I think there's a consequence to that, which is, you know, historically, especially different kinds of voices got crowded out because of the way the power and respect and, you know, favor trading and the whole, and racism and sexism got in there. I don't, it's part, it has been part of that, but I think you can do it both. You don't have to do that and still shine a light on the industry. Also knowing and acknowledging there is no absolute truth about what the best books of the year were. Is there, is there some right. strategic element to let's get some wattage in this thing so people pay attention at all? And maybe there's not a book that can do that. Maybe you're like, Jeff, are you, you're, I think I could reasonably be convicted in a court of rightness by saying, you think Lauren Groff is going to do that, Jeff? Because what you should be saying is, <laughs> where is um, well, Verghese, right? That, there's there's one. Where's mm-hmm. um? There yeah. There's no Verghese. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, last year, where's Zevin? Where's uh, Kingsolver? Right. Where's uh, mm-hmm. Garmu, Bonnie Garmus? Okay, yeah. I could get behind that actually. You know. Yeah. But I also want to see Blackouts by Justin Torres. I want it both ways. Is what I want. Yeah. I want same. It both ways. I think you need a you mix, know, and this is not, it's a, not a mix. Like it's there, not that. this list is diverse in some ways but not in the type of book it's offering uh anyway so i guess i'm gonna watch that for a while um and not change it let's see oh let's go to other good news of red say that segment makes me feel like those two cranky old muppets like sitting up up in their well you know there's that scene in swingers where they're like he's got these claws you're like what do i do with these claws man like i've got these claws like there's a bunny there how am i gonna kill it there's an element it's like why do, why do no one pay attention to books and reading and take it as seriously as they take TV and movies? Like, well, maybe because you nominate mm-hmm. books no one's ever heard of for the most prestigious right. American book award. There's, yeah, there's a nice analogy that I can't know. I can't remember where I picked it up, but someone talking about conversation was like, good conversations have lots of doorknobs, yeah. like lots of things that the people in the conversation can grab onto that they can then, you know, open the door and walk through and move the conversation in a new direction. And there is not a doorknob on this list. I think Chain Gang All-Stars is probably the closest to it because there are some like interesting, exciting That's like, a cool blurb for that That's book. That's a cool book. Right. Well, it's and, cool. And tough and, and timely yeah. and raw. And if you want to like come up with a one sentence slug for it that you can pitch to a friend, you could do yeah. that. But in general, an artsy MFA leaning work of fiction is not a doorknob. It's like a black hole for mm. most readers. Not only are they not going to go through it, they are going to be repelled yeah. by it. These kinds of books are not the thing that get general readers more interested, and they're definitely not the kind of thing that get people who are trying to decide, should I spend an hour watching something on HBO, or should I pick up a book? Mm. They're not going to be... This is not compelling to pick up one of these books instead. Yeah. And and I, and also, I'll probably read a bunch of these, and I'll probably like all of them. So uh, that's, sure. that's a different sure. question. Yes. That's a completely different right. situation. So anyway, let's go to other good news. So Red State's cutting ties with the American <laughs> Library Association. This is definitely something that happens in a healthy country, doesn't it? This mm-hmm. seems like yeah. a great sign. Yes. Cutting off your public library's access to the resources and funding and expertise from the flagship Library Association is just, it's a really solid move. I mean, what do you say about this? The, I think the, I wrote about this a little bit in Today in Books this week, like, and there's not much to say about it because it's just so willfully yeah. misreading things. But the the piece here, this is from, is from the Washington Post. It's a piece by Hannah Natanson. And she points to um, Senator Mike Lee in Utah um, is, you know, questioning witnesses in a Judiciary Committee hearing about the rise in challenges to school books. And when he gets his chance, he pulls up a video of Deborah Caldwell Smith, who's the director of the ALA's Office for Intellectual Freedom. And in this Zoom call that he's showing people, Caldwell Stone is 
saying to, that book advocates need to reframe book challenges because the debate shouldn't center on whether titles are sexually inappropriate mm. for minors. She wants to see the conversation be about diverse materials that are about everybody's right to see themselves and their families reflected. That's a direct quote. Everybody's right to see themselves and their families reflected. And Senator Mike Lee of Utah lets the recording play out and then says, what we see here was someone saying the quiet part out loud. The goal is to sexualize children, to provide minors with sexually explicit material, and then hide this content from the parents. And if that's the thing you're intent on reading into everything, okay. But those are not the words that came out of her mouth. And that just tells you everything you need to know about the place that this, it's not even a discourse anymore, has reached. Yeah. But there are, yeah, there are three states that have already cut ties. Uh, Montana, Missouri, and Texas have announced that they're severing ties with the ALA. And there are nine more states that are all right-leaning that are urging their state libraries to disaffiliate. I meant to put this in the agenda at one point, and I don't think this particular... And I haven't given this ahead of time. It just made me remember that I'd forgotten it before. And I'm reframing the reframing here a little bit because it's been a while since I read a piece about this issue where I actually paused for a Mm -hmm. minute you know, either on the, I'm like nodding my head vigorously or like shaking my fist vigorously when I'm reading about books and yeah. libraries and books in schools. And there's a piece in Slate that came out, I guess, 10 days ago by Eamon Ishmael. Um, it's called Closed Book. And the subhead is I watched book bans happen real time. I thought they were all hysteria. Then I opened one of the most challenged titles. And I'm not sure that I agree with this. I'm not sure it's agreeing is the nature of it. But um, the writer goes in and picks up this book called It's Perfectly Normal by Robbie Harris and Michael Emberley, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which has been challenged a lot. Puberty. It's a book on puberty and sexuality. And the author talks about looking at it and being taken aback by what's in it. Because it is, and I guess I'm homing on this term sexually explicit. And I think I am grew up in a much different, let's say, sexual health environment than <laughs> I think I would have liked and is probably appropriate. Mm-hmm. And my head knows that this is okay for kids to see this, to be educated about their bodies. There is a part of me that's like, wait, 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 what? What? I'm st-. And I think one thing, the large, some of that's happening, even, and I, I think there are some parents who may have a similar reaction. And the thing, the quiet part loud is, the quiet part that's being quiet is that sex is bad. And I still have some of that in me from my very, very early education. That's something to be protected from. But the thing, it's kind of like abstinence-only education. It's the same sort of situation. Mm -hmm. It's like, you may want that to be true, but that's not how people's bodies works. That's not how people's desire works. That's not how kids work. That's not how adults work. And people think that sexually explicit is bad. That's different than sexually exploiting. Like, sexually explicit is good when you're teaching them how things work. There's nothing to hide here, if done appropriately, but that any representation of people as sexual beings or sexual acts or body parts is bad and gross and wrong and the devil's work, I, it's there in American culture because I know because I feel the little piece of it. I have to fight back yeah. with it on my head a little bit to be like, there's nothing wrong with it's, showing genitals what? in an instruction manual. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> right. And it's this equating of acknowledging that people have bodies, acknowledging that people have genitals, providing illustrations of what genitals look like and descriptions of how they function Mm -hmm. and how they feel. It's equating that to pornography. That is the problem, you know, and like that's, I don't know, health education, it's medical information, but there are folks all over this argument, including an Alabama state representative Mm -hmm. named Susan DeBose, who says the ALA is a conduit for pornography because they advocate for books like this to be available to kids. Like acknowledging that children have genitals (laughs) is just... Well, and I think there's, I think among a centrist, a more centrist position, or even a more centrist feeling, like sometimes I feel like I have, not not centrist position, but a feeling, right? Where when I was a kid, mm-hmm. naked bodies were pornography no matter what they what venue they were presented in. That's kind of what we were right. told. And that's still, that's something to be fought. And I think it's okay to let people know, this is not something that you would have thought was appropriate when you were 10, is not the same as mm-hmm. it's not appropriate now. 
but we can't draw a line yeah. that all naked bodies well, are have to get because you know what your kids are going to be sex and you know even being sexualized is this weird transitive verb your kids are sexual beings or they will be soon and they they live in a sexualized world and this is information to arm them, guard them, educate them, protect them, give them authority, mm-hmm. consent, and autonomy about what happens to them, and understand what's going on in the world. And there's no arguing against that position. I don't see a I don't oh, right. see an argument against that position, even if my gut is like, oh, I wish it weren't true. It's- <laughs> Yeah, and I like I'm not a parent. I understand that these are difficult mm-hmm. thing, difficult conversations to parents to navigate, probably especially if you grew up with negative ideas about sexuality, even if you are trying to fight those or you have overwritten them in yourself, accepting that your children are sexual beings and and need to have these conversations. It has to be difficult. This is so reminiscent to me of like in 1993, 1994, Jocelyn Elders yeah. was the Surgeon General and Bill Clinton had to fire yeah. her because like as a reminder 1993 we're still having a lot of conversations about AIDS we're having a lot of conversations about talking to teens really for the first Mm. time about safer sex practices and she says we need to talk to teens about masturbation and we should like we should be advocating for this as a healthy practice a healthy alternative to unprotected sex and like the public outcry about acknowledging something that lost their damn minds (laughs) like Right. Yeah. Like that you do alone that can't hurt anyone else and that most, you know, kids discover on their Mm -hmm. own, whether someone tells them about it or not, even if they don't have words for it, she got fired. He had to fire her um, because the public outcry was so big for simply acknowledging this. And it's just so this is so retroactive. And it it it's just very discouraging, I think, to see. I mean, these folks are smarter than this. Like they, I don't know think they, I mean, that's that the acknowledging thing. Well, bodies yeah. is not pornography. I think the politicians know better. And this is a cynical play to get soccer moms, conservative yeah, parts of is. the country. Yeah. yeah, it's a cynical play to, for to be a politician who maintains power mm. in a place where parents hold conservative values. Yep. It's lazy. It's really dangerous and irresponsible because states like Mississippi, which have had the most mm-hmm. retroactive sex education laws, also have the highest rates of teen pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases. Yeah. This does not go no. well. And so like, I don't know why they think it's going to go well this time around. I guess similarly, well, I don't think they care about outcomes. About Texas. I don't think they, they blame someone else for yeah, outcomes. They don't care about outcomes. It's, there's something else yeah. wrong. Other there than, was a... Than uh, Yeah, a Texas teacher was fired this week after reading aloud from a graphic novel adaptation of Anne Frank's diary. And when I clicked on the link, I was like, oh, this is probably going to be some sort of anti-Semitic Holocaust denial something. It was not. It is because the book contains a passage where Anne Frank refers to boys and girls genitalia. And the teacher read that out loud. And the school claims that the book was not on the list of approved materials, even though at one point it did appear on a list of approved materials. So what we have here, like the diary of Anne Frank is no stranger to book challenges, but that it's the thing that it's being challenged for now. And that that this teacher was fired over is again, the acknowledgement that children have bodies in eighth grade Um, in eighth grade. This is not, yeah, in eighth grade, like they, I have new, they all already know. Uh-huh. Got news for you. <laughs> they all. Her name's know. Anne Frank, not Anne it's... Prude. Let me just say that out loud. Like, <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> Is there? A, I wonder. I don't know how you'd even measure this, but has any book ever been the subject of more discourse than Anne, the Diary of Anne Frank? Hmm. Oh, I don't know. Probably I mean, and let's be. throw out like the mind comps of the world. I mean, in the Bible, right? Sure. Like, but we're talking about a work of primarily literature. It's nonfiction, but it's it's read mm-hmm. in a literary context that has more public. It continues to have more public. People are still trying to figure out you know, people. He says with air quotes that no one can see, like what to do with that text politically, sexually, personally. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of us read a censored version. Yeah. The version we read when well, we were in when I was in was actually a censored version. Um, and so people make the argument, well, that's the one that I read when I was a kid. It was like, no, that's not that's not what this text is. It's it's a strange the, one. Yeah, and just the deep and really, I think, painful irony that in Texas, yeah. you can't acknowledge that an eighth grader 
has a body, but that same eighth grader can be forced to bear a child if they're yeah, raped. It's uh, you know these, and I guess the the red site cutting ties to the ALA. There's some of these bright lines. I'm like, I'm not sure how this gets walked back. Mm-hmm. When when is Montana rejoining the ALA, if ever? Like, when is that going to happen? Like, that feels like a break. That's not. I don't know. It's not. I feel like you could put the it's, bluest eye back on the North Carolina whatever list. That feels easier yeah, to do than like something like this. That requires like a surge a of surge is I right. think, grassroots yeah. activism right. that results in a le- like ousting like blue waves of the in these places that they just did, like it yes, has to backfire yeah, so yes. back that's the, so that's so politically mm-hmm. backfire that right. has to happen yeah. that way. Um, and I have a little bit of hope for that, given that it looks like the GOP is intent on making the same mistakes repeatedly. <laughs> like I'm, I'm not sure that next year yeah. is going to go well for them, um, and they will, might be very surprised by it. But I do think that's what it will yeah. take: is it, not even a blue, like a moderate wave. It doesn't even no, have to be blue. It um, it's very possible for a reasonable. Republican mm-hmm. or a reasonable conservative. And like, this is all we want. I want a healthy discourse with multiple parties. <laughs> uh, but you could be a very reasonable, moderate Republican and be like, absolutely fine. And it quietly gets Frank's walked diary. back like by state, by state, right. by state. It's not yes. like a big thing. And yep. suddenly quietly it gets walked back. I, I can see that mm-hmm. happening. Yep. But there, it's hard to imagine an en masse rejoining of ties line. with red states, with the ALA. It's going to have to happen in some, some yeah. other fashion. Yeah. This is an interesting one. I think you led today in books with this. Today? Yesterday? Mm-hmm. It was today, today I think, yeah. Um, Project Gutenberg. I, I say one of the net internet wins. Can we say that? Project Gutenberg? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so, yes. If you don't know, it's a website slash organization that hosts public domain texts and make them freely available and well formatted and translations and everything. This all illegal. It's all legal, right? It's, it's not mm-hmm. contested like the Internet Archive at Above Iron board. Bay or something yeah. else. They did a thing, which <laughs> it's, I'm not sure what people are going to think of it, but they released 5,000, these are public domain audiobooks using AI narration, meaning using AI to turn them into good quality in terms of listening experience audiobooks, which you might imagine for a public domain company, I don't even know if it's a company, it's an organization, nonprofit, I'm not even sure what their legal status yeah. is, but they're not making, they don't charge you for this, so they don't have any money to spend. No, they're free. And it turns out what's great for a company like this or an organization like this is free narration because audiobook narration is expensive. Those are real humans, have been real humans narrating them. And there've been some, I can't remember, there was one where there was like free, like volunteer crowdsourced audiobooks that you could narrate. Remember that? Oh, right. I remember that. Yeah, like you could sign yes. up to read one. And let me yeah. say unto you, the people of the bookish internet, I tried that and I did not do a subsequent one. <laughs> Take that for what you will. Most reading aloud well it's is hard. Difficult. What audiobook narrators do it's is hard. hard. Most normies, we should not be narrating audio And expensive. And not all books have yeah. audiobook versions because of that added expense, um, especially works in translation, smaller titles, university presses, self-published. And so they release mm-hmm. these audiobooks with AI narration. These are audiobooks in the public domain that probably wouldn't exist without this, almost definitely wouldn't exist. And we find ourselves in a bit of a crossroads, right? I think the, the public yeah. bookish's response to AI has been... I don't think I know. Almost unmitigated rejection. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. I think that's. Fair. I think yeah. this Just is harder to. Out of hand. I'm not saying yeah. I agree with that necessarily. Yeah. But I think this is harder to reject out of hand. Something like this. I agree. Yeah, I had to. I wanted to check yes. this out, and uh, so I clicked on Spotify. The first interesting thing is that they released these as podcast episodes on Spotify. They're not in the Spotify audiobooks mm-hmm. thing for who knows what the reason is, but it made them really easy to scroll through. The nature of public domain is that they're old and you haven't heard of yes. most of them. So I had to scroll for a while Did you before find a I landed Dickens on something, or something I recognized. I found I landed the first one I recognized was Call of the Wild by Jack London. There you go. And I listened to the first 15 minutes of it. And like what I said in Today in Books, like it's not Jim Dale narrating the Night Circus, but it's not the worst. It's better than like the average normie picking up a book and Mm -hmm. trying to do a good read aloud. It has cadence. It has intonation. 
I could follow it, you know, like it wasn't pausing at weird moments or anything like that. Um, And I think from an accessibility standpoint, this is a huge win for the same reason. Most of these titles are old. There's There's no market for them to pay someone multiple thousands of dollars for an audio book version. Yeah, there's no reason that a publisher would make an audio book out of most of these. And so if for some reason you need to read one of these titles and reading text with your eyes is not the thing that you can do or that you want to do, most of the time you're boned Mm -hmm. for a public domain book. Most of the time you're boned. That's pretty good. I think that's... (laughs) One of my better ones. Um, This is a big win for something like that and that it's listenable. It's not bad. Um, And given also now that I have Andrew Leland's memoir in my head about recent about blindness. And he was saying that, you know, for at least for him and for many of the folks in the blind community, they are listening to things at like one point five or two or even three X. AI narration going fast isn't really any worse than a regular person's mm. voice going fast. It's not really any better either. You don't notice how bad the CGI um, is I, in a Star Wars TV show if you're right, watching it at double speed. Right. <laughs> right. I just sped it up a little just to see. Mm. And I was like, okay, like I am a 1X listener. The spe- speeding things up kind of makes me feel weird. Um, but it, it was fine. Like I wouldn't right now at the quality that these AI narrations are, if I had the option of like, do you want a person who's a professional audiobook narrator or do you want this AI version? I would pony up the bucks to listen to the professionally narrated version. But if it was the only choice is this audiobook narrated by this AI that Project Gutenberg used, I would do it. It's not bad. Um, And I I do think that this, this one is harder to argue against first because it provides access in a way that we haven't been able to offer access to folks who need an option that's not visual reading and it opens up the audio option just in general to anyone who wants it for so many titles like if a book was published more than 20 years ago odds are that there's not an audiobook version of it it's 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 and i find it very i find myself very much of two minds about i don't think ai creating the actual text i'm i have any concern mm-hmm. anytime yeah, soon of reading the books i'm kind of be interested in i have heard some of these things one of the tools i use to edit the this podcast has a text-to-voice feature, which I've monkeyed around with it, and it freaked me out a little bit, honestly, to hear my voice. <laughs> no, seriously, because they have hundreds of hours oh. of my voice saying my words oh, yeah, without me having said them. But is it if it's a synthetic, you know, thing? How do you compensate people mm-hmm. who's? I mean, how did this thing get trained on a bunch of other people's voices right. that didn't get narrated? Or what if all the people did consent? Does that matter? It feels like it might. Feels like mm-hmm. it might not. Mm-hmm. Is it going to put a lot of people out of work? Maybe. I don't know. On the other hand, it's, the thing that led to the Enlightenment and the Reformation as we know it is the printing rest, and that put out a lot of scribes out of work. Mm-hmm. Is the word better, world better right. now because a bunch of scribes got put out of work? Is that a facile an- analogy? I'm not sure. That's where I am with a lot of this stuff right now, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, with you. I don't know either. I'm in that open questions place with a lot of it as well. Um, AI-generated text I haven't seen haven't anything, seen anything that's, that's anywhere. Yeah, that's interesting or feels like it's a threat to the creation mm-hmm. of real art. The 15 minutes of this AI narration of Call of the Wild doesn't feel to me like a threat or real competition for a professional audiobook narrator. It feels like a very good option when there is no other yeah. option. Um, it might compete if it was you can pay 15 bucks and listen to the professional narrator or you can pay five and listen to the AI generated one. And frankly, if that makes it more possible for more people to access the material, I, I might come out on the side of that's a bigger win that outweighs yeah, professional narrators losing work. I don't, I don't, I don't know. know. It's hard. It's um, very hard. It's hard. I mean, it's, you know, like we said when we first started talking about these AI things, it's been a while since technology came for the creative classes um, rather mm-hmm. than manual laborers or itinerant workers, conditional workers, much easier to chalk that up to the march of time. Um, and not everyone does that, that that's doing this. Um, but this is interesting. And you can definitely see a logical chain that gets from this being quote unquote okay to getting, um, you know, uh, professional narrators off the board. And if more of those mm-hmm. dollars then flowed to the author, does that make up for it? I, these are fascinating questions. On the other hand, I saw today 
that um, the new Emily Wilson's new translation of the Iliad is being narrated by Audra McDonald. And that is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I will pay that for that. Amazing. So maybe it means you really have to make your narration special to get people to pony up for yeah. it. I don't, I don't I mean, have the answers here. I'm going to be fascinated to see how my own thinking evolves and how the sort of wider worlds of thinking evolves around this. It will be interesting. And just to briefly mention Emily Wilson, incredible profile of her in the New Yorker this week. Emily Wilson is the most interesting person in the world. I'm here to say it. That's another reason I've slowed down. I'm making way through her translation of the the Iliad. I got an advanced copy of that. Got to say, Homer was on one for the Iliad, and uh, the translation is fantastic. (laughs) I'm going to need you to write a piece about this and call it Homer was on one. Hilarious stuff. It's too bad that you know you've been out of grad school for so long. That's a great dissertation title. Homer was on one. Modern interpretations of <laughs> the wine dark meme. Homer was on one. Um, <laughs> let's see. What else do we want to do here? Oprah. Speaking of being on one. Oprah. Really? She decided yeah, to that, walk. That was it, that's straight from she's our She walked it back from the seven hundred and eighty page. Uh, <laughs> covenant of water to I think she lost a bet I think Gail <laughs> she and Gail had some Gail sort like, of COVID bet and Gail won <laughs> and she says your loss is you have to go six books in the row picking 600 page books by dudes <laughs> and we're only two books if, in <laughs> if the next one is Wolves of Eternity by Carl of Nosgard, we're gonna need Oprah to blink twice oh god <laughs> If Oprah picks Nelsgard, I'm Dude, done. She picked a collection of Faulkner. Anything's possible. None of us never, it's we can't true. forget the Alamo, and we can't forget that Oprah picked a Faulkner box set. Whether it's real or not, I tell myself that Oprah made her way to Faulkner by way of Toni Morrison. Sure. And that's how I make you sense. You know what of they that. call that? Plausible deniability. <laughs> yeah, so Oprah picked wellness by nathan hill which is uh, more than 600 pages and here is where i have even more questions Mm. than we have had for the last couple of months about oprah because she spent four full months making content about the covenant of water by abraham verghese that thing came out in mid-may she announced it then and she was making videos about it like until last week Oprah loves this book. We are never going to know why it got four months worth of promotion. So when this Nathan Hill thing came out, I was like, oh, is Oprah going to a semester's model? Because that's interesting. Like, what if it's a a big book every time? Every, right. Every couple months, we get a big book and you spend a quarter reading it. No, no. Oprah is going to cover all 600 plus pages of Wellness by Nathan Hill in one month. So what comes next? Like, is there another 600-page book lined up in October? And the Nathan Hill book, like, the content for that, the final discussion, I think, is October 21st, which is a few weeks after the Jesmine Ward. So I don't think she's going to be picking Jesmine Ward as her next book Mm. because she tends to announce these Mm. picks at the book's release date. So now I'm kind of staring at October and November. (laughs) Or will we not get one until January because people need a break from the big books? Like, what... Was the what was going on with how anomalous the treatment of Covenant of Water was, and what is Oprah on with multiple six hundred page books in a row? I've heard a lot of good things about Wellness by Nathan Hill, and also Me the too. Ni- the Nix was list. a really good book. Um, this is a twofer for Hill, and we've been looking for someone. Be careful now. Be ready, everyone, for what I'm about to say. And <laughs> Oprah is no stranger to this person. We've been looking for mm, Franzen. Franzen. And this book sounds to me like freedom. Yeah. From it does. by Jonathan Franzen. Not exactly, but it's, you know, a mid, uh, upper middle class white heterosexual couple over several generations, social novel about how we live now. Boy, all my invisible air quotes are really getting overtime today. I got to get on TikTok <laughs> or something for this. Um, so I, I'm watching this. Because this mm-hmm. is interesting to me. Also, I can it tell that Oprah doesn't do a lot of um, programmatic ad blocking because right below her picture is a programmatic ad for a simple BMI calculator. So that's a tough look for everyone. <laughs> given, given that, so given, uh, and I'm just talking about this book. Yeah. The book is about wellness and our obsession with health. And 
you know, mm-hmm. or maybe, maybe, you know what, actually, I bet, I bet Google basically. is looking at the text of this announcement and thinking I'm interested in health and serving me. Oh, this like maybe. It's like the text is on here. There's no subtext here. Like, this is part of the text. And yeah. fascinating to see. You're reading a book called Wellness. Or you're interested in books yeah. that has, say, thing like carbs. And, um, yeah, interesting. I, I'm interested in this book, but I don't know what to, Me Oprah, too. You know what? She's entered the literary Tyson zone. This is a phrase that Bill Simmons of The Ringer um, in, <laughs> uh-huh. invented to describe that, you know, Tyson got to a place where you'd believe any story about him. I'm mm-hmm, to the point where mm-hmm. you cannot the onion me with any of Oprah's picks. I don't think. <laughs> yeah. If in April you had been like, hey, the thing that's going to happen in May is Oprah's going to pick a book and she's going to make TikToks about yeah, it for four months right. and accost people on the beach to try to get them to take copies <laughs> and then go to the like Maui Barnes and Noble <laughs> and buy copies. All this people, is doing is pushing like, people to you. Emily Henry. Oprah, I don't know if you know what you're doing. <laughs> you are that's on all one. you're doing. <laughs> Anyway. Yeah, my mom on the last on our last FaceTime was like, "Have you heard of this book, The Covenant of Water?" And what I was like, "Yes, like, no. I have. I've read this book. Please tell me everything that you're about to say about it." And she was like, "Oprah, my dad and I talked it. about and it. He didn't get it from Oprah, but yeah, he saw it in a big so stack long. of it because of Oprah, I'm sure." Yeah, and we we had a good conversation, and I did some like I'm not sure that this is the thing you're going to enjoy, even though Oprah has spent four months trying to convince you, and I really liked The Covenant of Water. It's this is going to be one of the great literary mysteries of our lives, Jeff. We're never going to know mm. why she spent four months on this book. But if I had to bet right now, will we ever see Oprah make that much content for a book again? I don't know. Probably not. Maybe not until the next Abraham Verghese novel, <laughs> ten years from now. I, I don't. I don't know. It's it's very very interesting, and we don't. We do not know. We have not gotten the piece that talks at all about this pipeline to oprah we don't know how this works like what was what were the what was in consideration for this month what were the also rants i think this is i mean Mm. i wouldn't pick a different world right now than the oprah book pick world we're living in honestly i love this actually it's It's very fascinating these books are fascinating and interesting (laughs) and it's different than wellness being picked for the national book award because people will pick this up because of oprah Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, they will. Oprah, oh, there's there's a hot take. Oprah but, Oprah is more responsible like, than the National Book Foundation for literary culture. She's, more, <laughs> she's thinking more strategic. More more strate- well, she's more important, but she's thinking more strategically yeah. about it. Um, I think she is. That was, you know, when I did my piece right. about Bridges of Madison County last month, one of the things that I read was a very pearl clutchy op-ed mm. from 1993 where someone was like, why is Oprah, and this was before the book club, but like Oprah has this platform, why is she using it to encourage people to read, you know, like crappy romance? And they were very concerned. And someone finally like got Oprah to talk about it around the time that the book club launched. And Oprah was basically like, listen, I just want people to read books. And so I'm going to talk about the kinds of books that people will actually read. Mm. And I think that if you go back and you look at especially like the first 30 or 40 Oprah book club picks, you can see how she stacked the deck. Like the first 10 or or so are really strong up like, market you know yeah. like up market their domestic mm-hmm. fiction women's issues race but not too difficult mm-hmm. and then once you've tr- once you've got like Wally Lamb and something page turnery under your belt Oprah's like hey now that you trust me how about we try Anna Karenina how about we try Faulkner some Faulkner box set. and wow. And people bought it. They went with her. Like, this is strategic. It is smart. She picks books that people will read. And at this point, she's got such a high Q rating mm-hmm. that everybody trusts her and will go along for 784 pages. But, like, if the Covenant of Water were a National Book Foundation or National Book Award finalist, no one is like, well, it, it made it over that hurdle. So now I'm going to read it. Like, Fascinating. Fascinating to see. Um, so you can find the link to that and all of our stories mm-hmm. we talked about at uh, bookriot.com slash listen. Go check out First Addiction. Go check out Today in Books, The Deep Dive, Book Riot Podcast, Patreon. Man, we make a lot of crap, don't we? Holy Moses. <laughs> um, and just think, if all of this was about the Covenant of Water, we would have had two weeks of Oprah's <laughs> content this summer. That would have been July 8th through like a 19th. 
Oh, you know what would be fascinating for first edition mm. is if you could get like the director of content. No, ain't no one gonna. T- they don't talk to Esquire. We've read the <laughs> pieces not, about people trying. Talk. We've, we've seen Vanity Fair and other people that like actual people pay attention to, and she ain't gonna. I don't know how it's gonna happen. Is this gonna be like a deathbed confessional? Well, Maybe gonna get a mem- like a primary <laughs> colors, but for Oprah's like personal book concierge. Like, yeah, you're right, because earlier this year we got those couple yeah, pieces Obama about ones. does Barack Obama really read the books that he picks? And Esquire looked into it, and that whole thing was shruggy of like, yeah, it sounds, sounds like he does, we, but we have no will, evidence of nothing. Right, nobody will tell me yeah. anything about exactly how he gets them. Like, no one's going to get any closer than mm-hmm. that to the, the Oprah process. Yeah, so anyway, it continues to be fascinating. I'm, it's almost better if we don't know, because then we can do this every now and again. Oh, yeah. It would be so much less satisfying just to be able to pick in advance what Oprah, like if we could call it every month what Oprah was going to pick, it would be so boring. Would we even, let's say she's going to pick 10 new releases next year, let's just say, and we have a list of all the new releases coming out next year. Do you think we'd even get one? I don't think we'd even get one. Maybe, maybe one. Depends on the year, I guess. I think, yeah, you might get one if... There's a book coming out by an author she's picked in the past yeah. or like has some leanings toward like she did talk about cutting for mm-hmm. stone. And so it would have been smart money to bet on Covenant of Water. But nobody could have guessed that she was going to do so much coverage no. of it. No, no, that's for sure. Yeah, the, the, vid- the yeah. short form social video complex has really <laughs> cracked open the floodgates. It's really, uh, it's really something. All right. Thank you, Rebecca. We'll talk to you next time. 